2: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show.
3: Thank you very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Kelly Evans this afternoon, and here's what's ahead on the show. Great for companies, great for households, but not strong enough to ignite inflationary pressures. So are we setting up for a Goldilocks growth period? Our economist thinks so. She's here to make her case. Plus, here we go again. The countdown to a partial government shutdown is on. The biggest holdup this time, it's just that. It's time, says our next guest. There's simply not enough of it to get a deal done. He walked us through it, and what would shut down first? And we have the action, the story, and the trade on three more names getting ready to report their results. We're looking toward the charts for the trade, and our technician sees an opportunity to buy two of them. That's ahead in earnings exchange, but we begin with a check on the markets right now. Near session lows with the Dow, the Nasdaq, and the S&P 500. Currently, you can see they're down roughly at one quarter to one half of one percent. The Dow Industrial is currently down by just about 175 points. Now, take a look at what's happening with healthcare, one of the lagging sectors so far today. And that's due in part to the underperformance in names like Eli Lilly, also Novo Nordisk. It's not in the S&P 500 overall, but still Those diabetes drugs and weight loss drugs makers are reacting partly due to the surge in Viking therapeutics. That biotech company just announced some trial results showing some favorable outcomes for a treatment that they're developing for anti-obesity. So those shares up about roughly 101 some percent near their session highs right now. So that battle right now for what's going to happen with the future of weight loss around America and around the world is starting to pick up. And then check out what's happening with Bitcoin prices. We're at right now just around, call it 56,745. At one point we did top 57,000, the highest levels going. You can see that chart all the way back to November of 2021. A lot of it has to do with the, at least optimism around Bitcoin ETFs and also this idea that we're coming up on an event that effectively reduces the supply growth of Bitcoin called the halving. Anyway, all of that, check out the stocks around the Bitcoin ecosystem. Coinbase, Marathon Digital, MicroStrategy. At one point, we're all solidly up today. Marathon Digital giving back some of those. It's a Bitcoin miner. Now, on the markets, that's where we start today. Our next two guests have Washington on the mind, and one says Congress could push stocks to the downside. The other says the Fed could lift markets even higher. Joining us now is Jeff Kilberg, KKM Financial founder and CEO. Also, Michael Schumacher. Wells Fargo's securities global head of macro strategy. Gentlemen, thank you both for being here very much. Uh, We'll start with the macro big picture, Michael. Can we talk a little bit about just how things stand with regard to your forecast for how things in the economy are shaping up in America? I feel as though the markets are telling us that things are not as terrible as they were feared to be just six to nine months ago.
1: I think that's right, Tom. So inflation's down a ton, we can see that. I'd say the path forward is a bit bumpy. We probably always knew that would be the case. You can't really have inflation go from very low to 9% and back to 2 to 3 very quickly without expecting some turbulence. But the really interesting thing is just how much of the rate cutting people anticipated a month or two ago has been taken out. So it's really a, more of a slow progression. So yes, the underlying economy looks pretty good but it's not hot enough yet to spook the Fed. So a good comfort zone for a lot of people.
3: Well, it's, it's this Goldilocks that I mentioned, Jeff, right in the, in the open here, this idea that maybe things are not as bad, but they're not as good, this, this middle ground scenario. But it took one hot inflation print to set the markets down a lot markedly a couple of weeks ago and to just turn around right away and have it go straight back up because of all, of all things NVIDIA. What, is it, what does that story
4: tell you? Well, I think it's revealed certainly in the CM- CME FedWatch tool, which talks about the percentage of those rate cuts. So it's a matter of, of not if, it's just when, but I think the market got ahead of itself, Dom. And we talked about those price cuts coming in, potentially in March, potentially in June. Now March is completely off the table. And I think we kind of took some of that performance. That's why we vaulted above 5,000 the S&P 500, above 5,100. But I think we're still going to be okay. I'm cautiously optimistic. It's not the rate cut story, if, Dom. It's just a matter of when and when the market's really going to embrace it
3: cautiously optimistic. Michael, yes. we, we, we've used that term and that cliche so much in the markets as of late. There are folks out there who believe that the soft landing is not inevitable, but it's the highest likely outcome. Is there a soft landing that's going to happen? If so, when? We haven't really seen any kind of a downturn whatsoever in the economy. If it does happen, what triggers it?
1: If it does happen, if there's a trigger, Dom, it's probably on the employment side. Labor markets are fickle, and they can go from robust to pretty weak to really unpleasant within the span of, call it, three to six months. It's probably that sort of thing. It seems a little hard to believe at this point inflation would go rocketing up. I doubt that's going to happen. But when you think about the labor market, maybe it weakens a fair bit. That's probably the most likely cause. Having said all that, I think the big question is, What's the chance of a really nasty landing? So maybe growth tips a little below zero. Does it actually go deeply negative? We, Wells Fargo, think that that chance is vanishingly low at this point.
4: Yeah, I'm going to push back real quickly because I think we're actually, Michael, I think we're in the process of this soft landing. It feels like the wheels are down. Let's not forget, we have $7.7 trillion in a balance sheet that is cushioning the tarmac for this soft landing. That's my belief.
3: Now, okay, so with that in mind, Michael, if you look at the rate picture right now, long-term yields have crept higher. I don't say surge because, yes, it does look pretty market from the three and three quarters kind of we saw at this cycle ish low, but they didn't rocket right back up to five percent. I mean, we're we're kind of in this four to four and a half percent. We kind of bump around four and a quarter for the 10 year note yield. You're rates, you're a rates guy. What does that say about what we think the long term growth prospects are and the inflation prospects in this country?
1: Rates are still really restrictive, Dom. It's interesting, if you think about the 10-year, for instance, and focus on the real yield, it's about 2%. And if you look at Fed funds, it's about 3 Those numbers are very high. So what that tells me is policymakers at the Fed, and this is true at other central banks as well, they want to keep policy tight a bit longer. So they're taking out sort of a prescription against the patient really going crazy and having inflation go rocketing up but they can't keep rates restrictive too much longer or it's going to cause damage down the road. So it's a pretty tough path to walk. I think it does set the stage for the Fed to cut, perhaps a lot less than people anticipated a few months ago, at least this year. But still, you can't keep real yields that high for that long or there's going to be trouble. Maybe it's six months down the road, maybe it's nine, not today, but still it's going to happen.
3: Jeff, I mean, it might be restrictive and and true in pretty much every academic sense of that term, right? But the stock market certainly doesn't view it that way. I mean, we're just about at record highs. We thought that NVIDIA would have to blow it out of the park by like a threefold to have the market keep going higher. It didn't have to. NVIDIA was solid, there's no doubt about it, and the market still continued higher. Why?
4: Well, I think it's the cash on the sideline. We're seeing cash and cash equivalents up about $7, 8000000000000 trillion. But more importantly, I think you're seeing participation, Dom. Look, today, we are seeing what Michael's talking about. The smaller cap stocks, the IWM, the Russell 2000, they're shrugging off the fact that if the, if the when conversation, they're anticipating those rates coming down. And that's why IWM is up 1% today. So a lot of these stocks are saying, yeah, it's bothersome, but we know it's inevitable that these rates are coming down. The 10-year should tuck back under 4% here in Q2. What seems, Jeff, in
3: your mind, to be the most attractive part of the market right now, given the fact that we've already run as much as we have in the last several weeks here?
4: I think the AI plays that are underappreciated, like a Tesla, but also these small cap stocks that were ignored and squished for so long, that mean reversion to the S&P 500 will allow some of these small caps to move higher.
3: All right. Uh, thanks very much, Jeff Kilberg. Michael, I want you to stick around, please. We have seven-year notes up for auction right now. Rick Santelli is tracking all the action from the floor at the CME. Rick, I'll send things over to you.
5: Yes, Dom. Hey, best of breed. So we had 42 billion seven years, not a record like the last two auctions in terms of size. Maybe the smaller size was a big help in this instance because the yield of those 42 billion seven years, 4.327. Pretty much spot on with the when issued market, which means pricing didn't help, didn't hurt but didn't hurt maybe is the operative phrase. And if you look at all the metrics, we had really solid bid to cover, the best since August of last year. Uh, 69.6 on indirects. Those are form purchasers. That was the best since October last year. We were definitely light, weakest since October of 2020 on direct bidders. You know, the large institutions, pension funds, insurers, that's a bit surprising. And dealers took A little bit more than the 10 auction average. So B is in boy. The previous two auctions were definitely middling average auctions. They were historic in size. We want to continue to monitor. And let's get it straight, folks. I'm not saying when we give good or bad grades for demand at auctions that it's going to poison the well for all the auctions and all the paper we need to issue to satisfy the debt. I'm just tracking it one auction at a time. And over time, you could see how investor demand seems to be softening ever so slightly month to month to month. Back to you, Dom. So
3: many variables make up that demand picture. Rick Santelli, thank you very much for that. We are going to dive deeper into that bond trade, the latest data, and what it's all telling us about the economy and the timing of the hypothetical first interest rate cut that we've seen this cycle. Let's bring in now. Stephanie Roth, the chief economist at Wolf Research. Michael Schumacher is still sticking with us as well. Uh, Michael, I want to get your reaction here because, you know, over the last almost decade and a half, we talked to you so often about the bond market and the rates action. What exactly did that seven-year auction tell you?
1: Yeah, it was decent. I think Rick's a pretty tough grader, frankly. I'm glad he was not my professor back in college. But when you think about what the auction's telling us, to me, it's kind of a natural lead-in to month-end. And if you think about all the investors out there who have to rebalance portfolios over the end of the month, and there are quite a few, whether it's pension funds or others, they would say, well, stocks have done really well this month. Bonds have done poorly. What does that mean I have to do? I have to buy some bonds. This is the last auction of the month. I suspect you're going to see. It's already cleared decently. It's probably in the aftermarket going to do okay. But it sets the stage for a pretty decent rebalance over the next call at four to five trading sessions into bonds. So I think the very near-term path is pretty good.
3: All right, we got an idea, Stephanie, of what Michael's view of the economy is right now. I'd like to get your take on this, this idea that the U.S. is not destined for some kind of a hard landing and that almost has become a base case scenario that the U.S. will either soft land or maybe not land at all and just kind of keep coasting along with this economic growth picture that's modest but might get stronger.
0: Yeah, we totally agree. Um, we're, we're expecting a soft landing. That's our base case. Um, and for us to stop landing is 2% GDP and inflation heading, heading back down towards 2%. We don't necessarily need to get uh, ru- GDP running well below trend in order to get there. And that's what we learned last year, that growth can actually stay pretty modest with inflation coming down. And dare I say, inflation actually appears to be somewhat transitory, even though we don't necessarily use that word anymore.
3: We don't use that word, Stephanie, because it wasn't transitory for a good couple of years there. And and, and it became very, very, very not good to, to, to use that term because of it. There's a reason why it's a triggering word for so many people. We did get a couple of hotter inflation reads than some people have expected. We've got PCE coming out later on, right? The Fed's preferred inflation gauge. Do we think as though inflation could not yet be a mission accomplished scenario for the Fed and for policymakers?
0: The Fed's definitely going to want to see more data, and January was a setback, but we very much believe it was driven by seasonal factors. We were cautious heading into the print, and the, the data was even stronger than we had anticipated. And this is driven by largely related to annual price increases that tend to go into effect in the month of January, which is catching up to the prior year's uh, strong inflation data. So, we don't expect this to continue. We think this is very much a January trend, and then in February and March, things should look a lot more normal. But the Fed will be likely on, on hold until June, which is when we, we expect that they're they're going to be able to cut. By that point, the year-over-year inflation rate is going to be below 2.5%, and they're going to feel a lot more comfortable uh, easing interest rates at that point.
3: Michael, how quickly the narrative has changed. Just about maybe a couple months ago, it it was like a half a dozen rate cuts, and it was all going to start in March and everything else. It all shifted pretty quickly within arguably maybe three weeks, two to three weeks is when all of that kind of started to unravel. What do you think your base case scenario is? Are you consensus? Do you think it starts in June, July, the summer months, and do we get maybe three or four this year? Or do we get more? I mean at this point it doesn't seem like the market really thinks we're gonna get more at all.
1: Probably in the middle of the year, Dom and I would say for most of your viewers are not too hung up on whether it's May, June, or July, but it's somewhere among those three, I would say. One reason I say that is that the September meeting's the last one before the election. If the Fed hasn't gone before then, it's kind of tough to defend doing your first cut a month and a half before voters go to the polls. But still, middle of the year, plus or minus total amount for the year, probably 75 basis points, but I think the really key point for people investing in bonds is we strongly believe at Wells Fargo that once that first cut is in, the market's going to price a lot more additional rate cuts than it currently has baked in. So what that means is that whenever that first cut happens, things like the two-year Treasury yield probably go down a bunch, the three-year a lot, the 10-year somewhat. So the market's behind with respect to the Fed's eventual destination but it's going to take a bit longer to get there than we thought.
3: Michael, this is an excellent point that you bring up. So, Stephanie, I'll toss it to you. This is, of course, an election year. There's a lot of crisscross between what people perceive to be political or non-political actions that affect our economy. Do we feel as though, no matter what happens in this election, what exactly could the prospects for the American economy be after November comes and goes? What does 2025 look like? I know it's a long way out.
0: Yeah, I mean, our our base case is that GDP could trend around 2%, but the things to keep an eye on are going to be what's what's going to shape up in terms of the 2025 tax deal, which will then be relevant for 2026. So if we have a a Trump presidency, that would look more like a, a $3 trillion tax deal, which, by the way, is not stimulus, that's just status quo. But that would be financed by something like tariffs, which would be uh, negative for the economy. And then if it's a Biden presidency, we'd get a a $2 trillion tax deal, which would mean tax increases on the the, the above 400,000 earners. So this is more a question about sort of 2026 growth because this tax deal expires at the end of 2025. But that's what the market's going to begin to focus on.
3: All right. Stephanie Roth at Wolf, Wells Fargo's Michael Schumacher. Thank you both very much for our economic discussion. We'll see you both soon. All right, I wanna bring your attention to oil prices. Reuters is reporting that OPEC Plus will consider extending those voluntary output cuts in the second quarter in an effort to prop up oil prices. The group first agreed to cuts of a little more than two million barrels per day back in November. Both West Texas Intermediate and Brent popped on the news Now up a little more than 1% right now, as you can see there. Coming up on the show, we're only four days away from a potential government shutdown as President Biden meets with congressional leaders to try to strike a deal for federal funding. We've got the implications for investors and foreign policy coming up ahead. But first, sources tell CNBC.com that Warner Brothers Discovery is no longer, no longer pursuing a merger with Paramount. Both stocks are down more than 20% to start the year. We'll look at the fallout for the media landscape coming up next. Exchange is back after this.
4: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast.
3: Welcome back. Big news in the media space. CNBC.com's Alex Sherman reporting that Warner Brothers Discovery is no longer pursuing a merger with Paramount Global. That's according to sources familiar with the matter. This after talks between Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zasloff and Paramount's CEO Bob Backish throughout the course of December and January played itself out. That stock, by the way, Paramount trading near a 52 week low and Warner Brothers Discovery not much better there. Here with more, uh, with that story, is the man on the case, who is CNBC.com's media reporter, Alex Sherman. Uh, This was maybe met with some skepticism early on anyways, but it seemed promising at what point. What gives? What happened? Why did it fall apart?
7: Yeah, so there's strategic logic to putting media companies together in terms of you're able to take out a lot of costs from the business. This was the playbook that Warner Media and Discovery ran, um, pushing those two companies together. You take a look at that deal though, and uh, w- that stock has fallen 45% plus in the past year, 60 uh, to 70% if you push it all the way back to when those two companies came together. So th- while there is and always has been strategic logic to pushing two medias together from a cost uh, eradication standpoint, if you look, Back at all of the recent mega media deals, so Viacom and CBS, or Scripps and Discovery, or Warner Media and Discovery, or AT and T buying Time Warner, uh, there has been a colossal loss of value in all of those deals. Now you're looking at two companies, Paramount Global and Warner Brothers Discovery, both trading near 52-week lows. So I think the sentiment here, the investor sentiment, of pushing these two companies back together at this stage is probably fairly sour. To say, look, there's been a lot of track record here. Maybe you guys shouldn't do this. Maybe you should worry about getting your own house in order first. And then look, just because there's pencils down now doesn't mean that a deal couldn't come back around if Paramount Global isn't sold okay, to somebody so, else. Okay, so let's, let's talk about
3: this. Let's talk about the sell to somebody else hypothetical scenario. This is not that just because Warner Brothers Discovery is allegedly source, source familiar, not part of this conversation anymore, doesn't mean that Paramount Global isn't still a possible deal target there is still another party involved in this process, right? Correct.
7: So that's, I think, why this is relevant, right? The reason that Warner Brothers Discovery even entertained doing a deal right now is Paramount Global has raised its hand to say, we're, we're talking. For sale. We're, we're for sale. For, we're, 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 yeah. we're, if, if you want to make an offer, now's the time. Uh, and so we know that Skydance Media, which they're reporting, us, others, uh, is in the process of doing due diligence on trying to figure out, is there a deal to be done here? where where Skydance Media, which is a smaller media and TV production company, would merge with Paramount Pictures, a larger studio company, and then either that would be a full takeover with divestitures potentially, or maybe you could just merge those two assets somehow, and then maybe the rest of the company trades publicly. The structure of that, I think, is very much still a TBD, and part of the reason why diligence on this has taken a fairly long time, I would say. This has been going on for months already. So Warner Brothers Discovery being out of the picture, nominally, good news for Skydance Media if they want to do a deal, because it's just one less player around the hoop on this. But maybe Warner Brothers Discovery feels like, look, if a deal doesn't get done there, part of what I reported is that Comcast is not interested in Paramount Global, perhaps the Warner Brothers Discovery folks say, we don't think a deal's gonna get done, or we don't see a deal that makes sense between those two entities. So maybe it behooves us to just wait a little while See if Paramount Global stock goes down even further. This is what John Malone, board member at Warner Brothers Discovery, said on our air about six months ago or so now, maybe a little less, uh, that he feels like it's possible Paramount Global may be on a train to becoming a distressed asset if you push this forward a year or two. Let's talk about some of the
3: outcomes. We've talked about this in the lens of horizontal mergers. Competitors getting together with each other to kind of create economies of scale. I remember and I think about the deal that Amazon did for MGM, right? This is a vertical integration. This is a much larger company that goes after a small one to shore up parts of its supply chain. Is there any prospect that a media property like a Paramount could become part of a larger media or tech conglomerate?
7: And if so, who could those people be? It's doubtful because the tech companies have basically said privately, we're not interested in legacy media assets. We can sort of do it ourselves. And why encumber us with this dying industry as a publicly traded company? We don't want to deal with that. That's not our business. So I think it's the hope of Paramount Global and Warner Brothers Discovery, by the way, that a tech company would come and buy them. But there are regulatory issues there. And I, and, and I think the transaction starts to get a little messy because they're not interested in these dying cable assets so yeah maybe they would be interested in the studio or other potential assets maybe you you take the streaming and you put it together with you know prime video or something like that it's possible but I, there's a lot of hurdles there and i think at this stage from what i can see it's more wishful thinking than anything else
3: all right uh alex sherman great reporting thank you very much for the look there we appreciate it Uh, And for the full story, by the way, just head over to CNBC.com. Alex Sherman's story is front and center out there right now. We're still on deck for the show. Speaking of big tech, Alphabet's artificial intelligence woes are back in the spotlight. We'll tell you who's in hot water right now and what's worrying Wall Street the most.
6: From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive.
8: Welcome back to the exchange, everybody. As the Dow takes a breather, I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. Uh, Change Healthcare's IT system still down since a cyber attack was discovered last week. The United Healthcare subsidiary tells CNBC so far 90% of pharmacies have found workarounds, while it works with Mandiant and Palo Alto Networks to restore its systems, but no word yet on when it'll be fixed. The U.S. Army announced it will reduce the size of its forces by around 24,000 or 5 percent in an effort to restructure itself to fight the next major war efficiently as it struggles with soldier recruitment. The cuts affect already unfilled posts, including those related to counterinsurgency in Iraq and Afghanistan. And Shohei Otani will make his spring training debut in less than two hours against the Chicago White Sox, uh, where he'll be the designated hitter in his first game since signing a 10-year $700 million deal with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Much of it is sort of backloaded, but no pitching yet for the star player isn't expected to take the mound this season while he recovers from that famous Tommy John elbow surgery. Back to you, Dom. All right, Tyler Matheson,
3: thank you very much for the news update there. Coming up on the show, President Biden meeting with congressional leaders to try to avert a government shutdown. We've got the details, what a deal could look like and what it means for Wall Street. Coming up next, the exchange is back after this.
2: A recent study of business ownership in the U.S. found only about 3 percent of businesses were black owned. According to the Pew Research Center, the states with the highest number are Florida, California, and New York. Celebrating Black Heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson.
3: Welcome back to The Exchange. Stop me if you've heard this one before. We are once again just a few days away from a partial government shutdown. President Biden met with congressional leadership earlier today to help hasten a deal. Emily Wilkins joins me now with those details in that meeting, Emily.
9: Well, oh, hey, Dom, well, yeah, we are now four days out from a partial government shutdown. And President Biden met with the top congressional leaders to urge them to prevent that shutdown from happening. Speaker Mike Johnson told reporters as he left the meeting that he would be doing everything he could to keep the government funded past this Friday's deadline.
3: We have been working in good faith around the clock every single day for months and, and weeks and over the last several days quite literally around the clock to get that job done. We're very optimistic. I I hope that the other leaders came out here and told you the same. We believe that we can get to agreement on these issues and prevent a government shutdown.
9: It feels like a really familiar story here, but lawmakers are closer than ever before on agreeing to that first tranche of spending bills. Now, this would cover about 20% of government funding. It includes Department of Agriculture, the FDA, Energy Department, water-related programs, and the Departments of Transportation and Veterans, of course, among several others. Now, lawmakers are negotiating a handful of provisions. This includes conservative priorities, but Democrats are also asking for increased funding for key nutrition programs for women's, infant, and children. Now, all of Congress is waiting on the text of these bills to be released. That could happen later today, no guarantees, of course. And at that point, the race to pass these bills begins, but it might not be enough time to prevent a partial shutdown. That deadline, again, is on Friday, the very end of the day, midnight on Saturday. I
3: st- Emily, I started off by saying, stop me if you've heard this before, but you know, stop me if you've heard this before. Could we find or see the possibility of some kind of a stopgap measure, a temporary fix put in place until they can agree to a larger, more comprehensive deal?
9: That's something we're definitely hearing lawmakers begin to talk about. I mean, you even heard Senator Chuck Schumer, um, House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, when they left the White House, kind of mentioned, hey, this might be something we have to deal with. It's not the result that anyone wants to see. They want to be able to actually get those bills done and sort of all the detailed spending for the rest of the fiscal year. But at the same point, the absolute worst case scenario is a government shutdown. And so they prefer having that stopgap than to actually having the, the government sort of fall into that spot where funding has run out.
3: All right. Emily Wilkins, live in Washington with the latest there on the government shutdown, aversion tactics. Thank you very much. With the House now not back in session until tomorrow, our next guest says there is simply just not enough time to get four appropriations bills through Congress by Friday. And there's a real chance of a partial shutdown. So joining me now for more is Ed Mills, Washington policy analyst over at Raymond James uh, Time. We all need more of it. Uh, What exactly is going to get done in your mind, given the fact that there is just no more time to really hash things
10: out? So, Dom, you're in a situation where if you have a clean bill, it has time. But if there is anything that is at all controversial, there's not enough time before Friday midnight to get that through the House because they're not back until tomorrow. In starting the clock in the Senate, the Senate has all these weird arcane rules that you go 30 hours and then you are able to unlock the next step and then go another 30 hours. Uh, There's not that time there. Uh, You asked about a continuing resolution. That's certainly possible. There's a couple of problems there though is one, uh, House Republicans have said they will not do that again. And two, Democrats will be needed to come along. What is their cost of coming along this time? Is it Ukraine aid? Is it something else?
3: Okay, Ed, there are some members of Congress who are, in essence, telling the American public that they need to kind of get used to this idea that there could be a government shutdown. What exactly does a government shutdown look like come this weekend if a deal does not get
10: done? So Dom, the United States Congress has 12 different individual bills that they fund the government. On Friday at midnight, four of those bills expire. Included in those bills are the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Energy Department, the FDA, Transportation, Housing and Urban Development. If you're watching the show and you have a flight on Saturday morning, you do not need to worry whether or not those TSA agents are going to be able to show up. They will. They might just not get paid until the government reopens. If you have a VA appointment over the weekend, that's not going to get canceled. But certain new things will get canceled the longer this goes on.
3: A deal not getting done is not beneficial for the optics around either party or Congress or the executive branch. This is an election year. What exactly are the tactics being contemplated now by both sides? as to why you would even wanna push this to the brink again?
10: So, Dom, it's just a situation where um, the House Republicans have a very narrow majority. And there is a small group uh, who say if the Speaker cuts a deal they don't like, they are going to have a motion to vacate him, and he's going to be former Speaker Johnson. That's what this really comes down to. Now, you say that there's a lot to lose across the board, However, politically, when we look at almost every other government shutdown, Republicans are the ones that seem to get the blame here. So what Speaker Johnson is trying to walk this tightrope here, is telling his caucus he's going to fight, but he's not in a very strong negotiating position because the dollars that are going to be spent were agreed on a year ago. Bipartisan support. The final numbers, what we're talking about this week, were agreed on months ago. So it's just a a question of when will we actually get this deal done? Because even if we're in a government shutdown, the only thing you do is reopen it at the numbers that are agreed to.
3: Let's not talk about this in terms of Biden and Trump. Let's talk about this in terms of House leadership right now, and that is Speaker Mike Johnson. Is this dramatic, or not dramatic to say that this is almost like a mini referendum on the speakership under Mike Johnson's tutelage?
10: Yeah, so Dom, what I would look at is um, the Speaker Pro Tem, uh, Patrick McHenry, who took over after Republicans ousted um, Speaker McCarthy. And what he said is, in many ways, He's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't, that almost any deal is going to upset some portion of the Republican uh, caucus in the House of Representatives. And so his advice to Speaker Johnson, which I agree with, is find a deal that you can cut, bring it. And if you can get policy, great. But if you're just trying to prevent yourself from getting ousted, we know from sports that the only thing that a prevent defense does is prevent you from losing. Uh, or prevent you from winning, actually. So I just think that we can look at these politics, but he doesn't have a lot of room to maneuver to so just cut the deal, keep the government open figure out what policy you can get in that final deal.
3: Ed Mills, defensive coordinator, saying that prevent defenses are like the death by a thousand cuts. Thank you very much, Ed. We appreciate it. All right. Coming up on the show, shares of Alphabet are up nearly 300% since Sundar Pichai took the helm more than eight years ago. And while investors may be cheering, Google has yet to launch a Blockbuster product under his watch. And after the latest AI setbacks, Gemini, could a C-suite shakeup be coming up? That's next. And as we head out to break, here's a look at some of the names hitting all-time highs today, including AutoZone, O'Reilly Automotive, TGX Companies, Ulta Beauty, and others. The exchange is back after this. All right. Renewed concerns today around Alphabet's AI model, Gemini, as more controversies mount around the chatbot's inaccurate responses and image generation features. Some are now calling for a change in leadership. Our dear Drabosa has been covering the story for today's Tech Check. D. that seems a bit out there. Why is this conversation even coming up?
2: It is out there. And I will say that you mentioned how the stock has performed under Sunder Pichai for almost a decade, nothing to scoff at, but also this conversation isn't exactly new, right? There's always been chatter around Google that it's not nimble, it's not quick enough. Um, You have nicknames like Grandpa Google, this idea that Rest Invest, that's where senior engineers go to do that. They stop innovating and they're slow to ship products. But in this case, right, it's all the more important because generative AI is supposed to be the biggest platform shift since the Internet. So there's this idea that Google can't afford to have botched rollouts like it has with Gemini, that this matters more than ever. So the CEO, Sundar Pichai, he's taking a lot of the heat, I would say, not from any major investors that I have heard on, but more on social media. So it will be interesting to see if other investors like a TCI, for example, that was the activist that wrote a letter back in 2022 telling Google to get fit. We haven't heard from them yet. Or other large investors to see if they're sort of demanding for changes in management. I will say, though, Dom, there's another person to keep an eye on. It's not just Sundar Pichai himself, but it's Google's chief of search, uh, someone named Prabhakar Raghavan. He's been at the forefront of AI announcements, demos, and the recent apology over the Gemini image generator. So he's someone to watch as well. And The fact that he's out front, maybe not Sundar Pichai himself, but the head of search is the one that's announcing these new generative AI products may tell us something important here, that Google isn't ready to let go of search. And that big question still looms over the company. What happens to its cash cow search advertising?
3: I mean, for sure, that's a huge part of the core business there and obviously an engine for what drives maybe a lot of the other investment there. I wonder... Uh, In in your reporting, in your circles uh, around the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, is there a sense as to what uh, Sundar Pichai, what Alphabet and Google need to do to put themselves as a favorable investor story up against the likes of companies like an Amazon or a meta platforms or other mega cap tech companies that have such AI ambitions as well?
2: Yeah, I think the main thing is that it has to be more nimble. It has to move faster. When you think about what has happened with Gemini, had to do this big rebranding. It was Bard. Another project was Duet. We've seen this in the past that Google has had to sort of rebrand products, relaunch them, take them away. They need to be more decisive. That's at least right here in the Valley. They need to be quicker as well, right? ChatGPT stole that mainstream AI moment. It took Google nearly two years to get Gemini out. And it was still riddled with all of these issues, not to say that OpenAI's ChatGPT didn't have its issues when it launched as well around misinformation, bias, as well as just straight up hostility. Um, but there also is this idea when you look back at Sundar Pichai's, you know, management reign over Google, there hasn't been this big killer product yet. I mean, you could argue that cloud, yes, but it's a hyperscaler, but it's you know, the number three position. And until recently, it wasn't even profitable. So I think that people here in the Valley want to see more innovation. What Wall Street wants is better communication. But I will say Google has never been great at that in the first place. I think one analyst today called it the hermit kingdom. They keep their head down. They work on stuff, but they don't particularly communicate as well with the street as compared to, say, a Mark Zuckerberg and the year of efficiency. That's when he really started to gear the message toward Wall Street. And we've seen what's happened with that stock.
3: And there are those who argue that everyone is still on that side, outside of NVIDIA, chasing Microsoft and Satya Nadella and Sam Altman over open OpenAI. Dear Bosa, thank you very much. We'll see you later on. Coming up on the show, panels, pet insurance, and payments. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on First Solar, Lemonade, and Square ahead of earnings, Square Space ahead of earnings. Uh, That exchange is coming up right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings season is winding down, but still a few key names are left to report. Today we've got First Solar, Lemonade, Square Space on deck, and joining me here on set for the trades is Oppenheimer's Ari Wald. Let's start things off with First Solar. The solar space is getting a lot of attention these days and this morning for sure. JANI downgraded Sunrun to neutral and lowered their target price to 13 bucks a share from 20, citing uncertainty about demand after its report. Demand will also be a key factor to watch in First Solar's report, according to Roth MKM. The firm also keeping an eye on falling prices and oversupply. Ari, what's the trade here? Well, that's such a great point
11: right off the bat. The weakness across the board, Sunrun, Enphase, First Solar. First Solar, actually one of the few that had worked during the initial stages of the bull market in 2022. Now that's rolled over as well. So you have that top-down pressure. Uh, Here's a stock that initially broke down last uh, September. And here are the rules. Uh, Prior to that, it was trading above a rising 200-day average. When that's the case, you want to buy pullbacks. Now it's trading below a falling 200-day average of the rules you want to sell strength. So I don't know how it's going to respond directly after reporting earnings, but if you get a pop in the stock, you want to sell it into that 200-day average at around 171 in a
3: strong market tape, one of the few stocks in a downtrend as it stands. All right, so the charts are right there behind you right now. You can kind of see those for First Solar and that downtrend line for the long-term 200-day. Next up, you got Lemonade. Shares of the digital insurance name are up nearly 37% over the past year. Uh, your colleagues at Oppenheimer Ari, are saying positive and it's on its expansion in Europe and a hopeful return to normal weather patterns this year. All of that factors into insurance. You're watching Lemonade's technicals. You also see an opportunity not just from the fundamental, but the technical side as well.
11: Uh, that, that's right. Confirming uh, disciplines here at, at Oppenheimer, one where you see the chart. Starting to reverse higher, it's part of this expansion in small caps that we're starting to see, or at least the bull market's starting to broaden out a bit. Uh, A stock that is reversing the prior downtrend, you see it in the slope of its 200-day average, which has really just started to take a positive tilt uh, year to date. It's been up the last couple days, I think up maybe 7% today. Maybe tough to chase it into earnings, but one, if you get a little bit of a pullback, into around $28, $19 or so, I think you buy it. I think there's a runway into the last peak from July at $25, which is $4 of upside from here.
3: All right, we're showing that chart right now with that longer-term 200-day as well there. Uh, finally, we want to call your attention to Squarespace. Those shares are higher today and up a little more than 3% so far this year. Mizuho has got a neutral rating on the stock, seeing several potential growth drivers going forward, including the launch of Squarespace payments, but it's worried about the near-term upside as price increase tailwinds abate. Ari, you're a buyer though of Squarespace with these charts. This is a great looking chart, Dom. Um, I mean,
11: I think the setup here is, here's a small cap growth name. I think at this point in the cycle, small cap growth just carries in a great balance between secular growth leadership and the rotation potential that we see developing in smaller capitalized stocks. So you got a name like Squarespace, which has run right into resistance at $34. It hasn't been able to push through just yet, but I think with a bullish trend behind it, with this top-down strength from a strong tech sector, I think you get that breakout to the upside. It would measure north of $40 on that breakout. So... Uh, Pretty
3: attractive setup how we see it. All right, 40 bucks target with a $33.70 price right now. That's an interesting move higher. Uh, Speaking of payments, by the way, and platforms, reports are circulating that Klarna is sounding out banks as a U.S. IPO for right now is possibly valued at a $20 billion valuation. The Klarna CEO, by the way, uh, will be joining Closing Bell Overtime later on this afternoon. That starts at 4 p.m. Eastern time. You don't want to miss that interview. Uh, again, Klarna, a lot in the news these days for that IPO chatter. Uh, I also we have a little bit of time left, so I want to call your attention to what's happening with the broader markets right now. If we are at an inflection point or whether or not this is enough of a breakout that we could continue to see bullish sentiment specifically for the S&P 500.
11: We think so. I mean, the market has run up undeniably so. Sentiment indicators are more optimistic. But they're, uh, they've reached these levels in a, in a very consistent and bullish manner. Uh, weekly RSI on the S&P 500 coming off a reading above 75. Only 4% of market peaks have occurred with an RSI reading above 75, arguing against a top. The lingering concern has been small caps. They haven't, uh, uh, made they haven't them participated. Behind. Right. But that divergence now offers breakout potential. You're starting to see that in recent days. And that could finally set up, Dom, the bull cycle's long-awaited broad-based breakaway. We still haven't had that yet in a year and a half, where you get stocks above their 200-day average closer to 80%. Uh, So we still see runway to the upside. Uh, We've been calling for S&P 5,400 since the start of the year and still think we get there.
3: All right. Ari Wald. At Oppenheimer, the chart master, watching what's going on. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. So. All right. Well, that does it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, shares of Viking Therapeutics are soaring today. They're doubling in value after its experimental weight loss drug showed some promise. They're going to dig into all of that story on the other side of this quick break. We'll see you tomorrow here on The Exchange.
2: You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.